You're listening to the Regent College Podcast. Welcome to the Regent College Podcast. I'm your host, Amy Anderson, and I'm here with Regent's Marshall Shepherd, Professor of Biblical Studies, Ian Proven. Ian, thanks so much for joining us today. Always a pleasure, Amy. Thank you. Uh, Ian, the last time we sat here, we were talking in February, and you were just finishing up um, your most recent book. Is that right? Yeah, that's exactly right. All right. Can you tell me? I think the title has maybe changed since then. Can you tell me what you settled on? Uh, yes. Um, we settled on simply the Reformation and the right reading of Scripture. Um, I was keen on the title Seriously Literal Interpretation, but the publisher felt that the word literal might communicate the wrong kinds of things to a bunch of readers, so they uh, persuaded me that that was not the best way to go. Mm-hmm. Um, when you call it the right reading of Scripture, can you tell me a little bit about why you went with that? Well, um, <coughs> really the fundamental reason is because I do think there is such a thing as the right reading of Scripture, and there are such things as wrong readings, and we're living in a, a time and a place, many of us, in church life where that mere statement would probably be challenged by many people. So we're going through a, a phase of loss of confidence, I think, in the ability of Scripture to address the church clearly. And, you know, in the 500th anniversary year of the Reformation, it's a very good time to reflect on the issues surrounding that question, I think. Um, We talked a little bit about some of those issues in our last podcast, so I don't want to sort of recover the same old ground, but we talked a little bit about one issue that I'd like to cover a little bit more, and that's the question of perspicuity. Mm -hmm. Um, Just in case anybody's new to the whole concept of perspicuity, I was wondering if you could tell us what that means to you. Yes. Um, Perspicuity is just a posh word for clarity, really. And so let's use the word clarity. Um, This is a very important reformed idea. The idea is that Scripture in its basic claims, its its kind of most fundamental truth claims, is not um, mysterious, esoteric. You don't have to be a member of a special club of some kind in order to, to read Scripture that... Um, if you if you're working at least from a, a good translation and you have a few very basic rules of reading that scripture is not difficult to understand in general terms that you won't pick up the gospel of mark and have no clue what's being being said so that's the the, the basic idea of perspicuity mm-hmm. um, we're talking a lot about perspicuity this year just because it is the 500th anniversary of the Reformation. But was it a new idea? Was it something that Luther just came up with? Or is there a longer history to the concept? No, there's a much longer history. The Reformers themselves claimed constantly in everything they were saying that they were merely picking up ancient Christian tradition and rearticulating it. And I think they were telling the truth on that. <coughs> And they were certainly telling the truth on that when it came to clarity. Um, You can find many other examples in early Christian patristic writing where the clarity of Scripture is either stated to be a thing or it is presupposed in what people say in their writings and so on. 
so not a new idea, but an idea that had come by the time of the Reformation to be questioned in various church circles, for sure. Um, this idea of going back and sort of picking something up and, and returning to it is one that happens often in the church. The Reformers claimed that they were doing that. We sometimes claim now that we're doing this um, in regard to the Reformation. Is it... Is it a real thing? Can we actually go back to what people thought before and revive it um, sort of as it is? Or does, is there always sort of an inevitable change that comes with that? Um, well, things change over time, of course. So when we're retrieving things from the past, we're always doing it in a different context. But that's not to say that we can't retrieve things faithfully. It just means that it won't look quite the same when we retrieve it as it did to the people from whom we're retrieving it. Um, so 500 years later on, we know a lot more about the world and how it works, for example, than Martin Luther did. Um, we actually know quite a bit more about the history of how the Bible came to be than Martin Luther did. It just so happens. So when we retrieve ideas from the Reformation, it doesn't mean that we become thereby 16th century people. We're still retrieving it as 21st century people. Um, but to know that we are standing in continuity, though, with Orthodox Christians before us, I think is really, really important. Um, in that process, we you talk about the things that we've gained over time, but are there things that we've lost? So we're in continuity with Luther and his contemporaries, but are there insights that they had that we just don't have the capacity to grasp as fully now? Well, one of the core ideas, of course, of the Reformation is the famous sola scriptura idea, scripture alone, um, by which they meant scripture primarily, that is to say that they didn't mean you only ever read the Bible, they just meant that when it came to adjudicating truth claims that the Bible was the measuring stick, the canon that enabled you to do that. Um, I think in many church contexts we've lost their very serious conviction that scripture could function that way in the church. So that would be a good example of a perspective that we might talk about and even theoretically claim for ourselves, but one does wonder sometimes whether it's functioning in a very robust way. I think in many evangelical Protestant churches of the moment, <clears throat> at least in the West, that people are being driven much more by gut feeling alone than by scripture alone, arguably. Um, and that represents a pretty grievous uh, loss, mm -hmm. I think. Um. And you think that is a departure from I, the history? I think it's a departure not just from the Reformers. I think it's a departure from Orthodox Christian faith from the beginning. Um, this tremendous confidence that people have in their own individual ability to look within themselves and find truth is really much more a product of uh, modern Romanticism than of anything deeply Christian, I think. Mm -hmm. What do you think is the process to recovering that, recovering that deep confidence and that deep, um, I, I guess in some ways a deep submission to uh, Scripture as the guideline, the measuring line for life? Well, I think it would help if we recognized that these, these ideas are not just the inventions of a 16th century disenchanted monk 
you know, that these ideas themselves arise from the teaching of Jesus and the apostles and the prophets, that they are not optional extras to the Christian faith, that we receive Scripture as our canon because Christ gives us Scripture as our canon. Christ himself teaches us that it is clear, perspicuous. Um, So these are part of the Christian package deal, and I think perhaps an important step in recovering these perspectives is to realize that we must, that they're not consumer add-ons, you know. They're not just apps to to add to your, you know, Christian phone, as, as it were. These are intrinsic to the whole Christian way of thinking about the world. You, you raise the question of canon. You con- comment that um, Christ gives us the scriptures as canon, um, but we know, and you, you have taught me, <laughs> that actually um, the canon comes to us partly um, from God and partly through the tradition of the church. Mm. I was wondering if you could speak a little bit into that question of how tradition mm. um, still plays out uh, in a post-Reformation world, in a post-modern world, mm. um, and how we can see ourselves in continuity with the broader church through that? Well, I mean, tradition is a deeply human thing. I mean, we are creatures of tradition, all of us, and there's nothing wrong with that. And the Reformers were not against tradition as such. In fact, they claimed to be standing within the great Christian tradition. All they wanted to assert was what their forefathers had asserted, that when it comes to distinguishing good tradition from bad tradition, you need some kind of canon, some measuring stick uh, to do that. So, of course, we have these scriptures through the tradition of the church in a sense. Uh, On the other hand, the early bishops themselves, even when introducing new Christians into the church, would urge them to make sure they're reading the scriptures to check up that what they're being taught is true. So, um, you see this in the in the church fathers themselves, this kind of dynamic interplay between tradition generally and apostolic tradition particularly. But there's no question as to which one ought to have the upper hand, really. Um, so, you know, in our Protestant tradition, I think there has been a tendency in some church circles to be against tradition as such. And that wouldn't sit very well with the Reformers, I think. It's also not true to reality, because I've never seen a church that claimed not to be bound by tradition that was not, in fact, bound by tradition. Um, but it's a bit like the water you swim in is the, water, is the stuff you don't notice. So. Mm-hmm. Um, what are some of the areas where you've found um, a sort of a tension between Scripture and tradition, and um, you found yourself, maybe your, your understanding of Scripture and your interpretation has shifted as you have um, reflected more heavily on the tradition? Well, I think there are still a number of issues that have to do with the Greek influence on Christian theology, which are (coughs) problematic. Um, And I know we have to be careful here. Uh, There has been a tendency in some circles to write off everything Greek as bad, and I don't think that's true either. And yet I look at something like the immortality of the soul, for example, which was something I think I grew up believing without questioning, really. But as I've come to get into the scriptures more and more, I profoundly doubt if that's a biblical idea. I think that is a platonic idea which has been unhelpfully fused with Christian tradition. 
it's not that there are not aspects of Greek philosophy that you cannot helpfully fuse with Christian theology. That has happened in the creeds, for example. But there are particular items in the tradition where I think if you do bring these items to the measuring stick of Scripture, you begin to doubt that they are, in fact, things we ought to believe. So the innate immortality of the human soul would be one of those. Mm. Um, Some of these areas where there is a tension within the tradition or perhaps between the tradition and Scripture come out of tensions that are within Scripture itself. Um, And I'm wondering, as we're thinking through the concept of perspicuity, how do we deal with those tensions that are within the text itself, where perhaps we see... Um, a New Testament writer uh, interpreting the Old Testament in a way that doesn't seem plain on the face of the text, um, or we just see things that appear to be taking different positions. What is the appropriate response to that kind of thing? Well, I certainly think that the kind of truth that Scripture communicates is not cookie-cutter kind of, of, of truth that immediately may seem coherent. I think there's a multivocal kind of approach to truth. And you see this in the fact we have four Gospels. Why do we have four instead of one? I I suppose the answer must be that we need four and not just one to get to the whole truth of the matter. Um, So there's difference there. And yet the subject matter is the same. It's all about Jesus and what Jesus taught and Uh, did and all the rest of that. Um, In those cases, it's not so much a matter of adjudicating, it's a matter of trying to understand how these perspectives together communicate the truth that God wants to communicate to to the church. Um, So those kinds of tensions, I wouldn't really call tensions in a way. I, I, I think seeking the clarity of Scripture in that case is seeking the clarity of Scripture in its multiform nature. Um, so that's probably how I'd begin to answer that question. Um, I know that you've given some thought to uh, the relationship between the New Testament and the Old Testament and what have been interpreted by some people as inconsistencies between those two um, portions of the Bible. I was wondering if you could speak a little bit to how it is that we can begin to read Scripture in a way that is perspicuous, in a way that is clear, but that also gives um, full attention to the fullness of the text and mm-hmm. the, the depth the depth that is in the story there. That's a very difficult question to answer in the abstract. (laughs) In some ways I want to answer, you do it by doing it. (laughs) Um, So as with the reading of any text, you read and you read again and you read a third time and you hope that in the reading of it, the coherence becomes clearer, the, the plot becomes sharper, the truth is being communicated. Um, impress themselves upon you more deeply. Uh, And indeed, therefore, it all becomes clearer and more perspicuous. The Reformers didn't mean by the perspicuity of Scripture that every time you picked up the Bible, what was being said would immediately be clear to me. They certainly didn't think that it required no work. They were great proponents of learning biblical languages, Uh, That is, 
every Christian insofar as they were able learning biblical languages. Um, so they were, they were very pro-education for everybody so that people could do this. Um, so I think they would have said, and I would say, that there is no shortcut to this, that, uh, that we need to get into the text and dwell in the text and, and persevere with the text. And thus the text becomes clearer as we become more familiar with it. What is the role of the Spirit in that? Well, the Spirit is crucial to all of that in the same way that the Spirit is crucial to all of the Christian life. Um, The Spirit is active in and through all of that. And I don't think that it's wise to try to abstract particular actions as it were of the spirit as if somehow for example I've I've heard people say well don't bother me with all that Hebrew and Greek I, I just want to pick up the Bible and have the spirit guide me and my observation on that is I don't believe that's how God has chosen to work in the world actually so I, I think that's not a very good posture to strike um, so the Spirit works with us as we work in revealing and helping us to see uh, and all the rest of that. Um, and that, I think, is true of the Christian life generally, that the, the Spirit works within us and through us at the same time as us, and we do not sit back and allow the Spirit, as it were, to work without ourselves applying ourselves. And I think Scripture makes that very clear actually, in all sorts of ways. Mm-hmm. What is the distinction then between, say, a Christian study of Scripture and the academic study of Scripture? Is there a line between the two things, or is it is it all of one piece? I think in an ideal world there shouldn't be a line between those two things, because I think a faithful reading of Scripture is at the same time an academic reading of Scripture, if we mean by that asking smart questions and looking for good answers which I think is what we we ought to mean. In some ways, I'm a bit nervous about the word academic, therefore, because I think that word has almost become a bad word in some church circles. It seems to stand for merely abstract, hands-off, you know, coolly intellectual engagement that doesn't change lives. But there's no reason why we have to concede that definition of academic. Um, and from a Christian point of view, we shouldn't. And so I, I want to resist dichotomies between, you know, spiritual reading and literal reading or academic reading and, and, and what, pious reading. I think these are really unhelpful dichotomies, actually. Mm-hmm. Is it possible then to study Scripture in a faithful way, in a way that's faithful to the text without actually submitting to the text? Um, is it possible for us to study, I won't say academically, but to study it, um, <clears throat> yeah, without entering into what it demands of us? I don't think it is possible. I mean, submission to the text is what is our basic posture in the sense that whatever we find the text to say, we want to live by. But of course, that begs the question, what does the text want to say, which then circles you back to all the hard work that you have to do to make sure you get that right. So that way of putting the question, I think, is very helpful in terms of seeing that these are not um, opposites. Um, You've given lots of thought for a long time to issues of hermeneutics and um, how they fit into 
a historical framework and how they fit into um, an academic framework and a study of scripture. What is it that you see yourself working on in the next few years? Well, that's an active matter of consideration on my part at the moment, and I don't have a clear answer yet. Um, I'm probably going to pursue something on this biblical interpretation theme further, though. I'm thinking of taking maybe one example, uh, so a particular case study, and putting that in the context of my previous book and the upcoming book and seeing what happens. And uh, I haven't finally decided on that Um but one of the things I'm interested in is the way in which various Christian or Christianized groups over the course of history have identified themselves with Israel in a very direct and unreflective way and all the consequences, many of them disastrous, that have followed from that through inattention to the way the story develops and where we are in the story. So you know who we think the israelites are and who we think the canaanites are in in that story can lead on to fairly obvious and devastating results so that's one possibility but for the last 20 years i've been trying very hard to um allow ideas about my next book to arise rather than to force the issue so whether that's actually what i'll end up working on, I don't yet know. Mm. Um, are there texts that you still struggle to interpret? Well, yes. Um, I think that will always be true. Um, I don't think we're promised absolute, ultimate knowledge. Um, we are only promised enough knowledge to live by. Um, so, of course, there are texts that I'm clearer about and texts that I'm less clear about. And I'm not sure that anyone will ever fully understand why we're told in the Pentateuch, or the Israelites are told, not to boil a baby goat in its mother's milk, for example. Um, that's not a comprehensible text, as far as I can see. On the other hand, I'm not losing any sleep over it because I don't suffer the temptation presently to boil a baby goat in its mother's milk. So I think I can live with a certain degree of equanimity on that point. Mm -hmm. um, is there anything that raises a little bit more more of a struggle in you? Well, uh, at this point, of course, after several decades of thinking and reading and so on, um, there are more and more issues that I feel I've arrived at a state of relative quietude about. But in the past, it would be true to say that uh, the place of woman under Old Testament law is when you first encounter it, very disturbing. Um, some of the texts about the conquests of the Israelites, to go back to the question you asked about my next book and what that implies about the character of God, these, when you first encounter them, can be very troubling texts. So there, there are many questions that still bother other people that I have worked through to a certain degree of satisfaction for myself. Um, I'm sure there must be good answers to your question about what still bothers me at the moment, but I can't just at the moment think of what they are. So it's great. The peaceful mind is a yeah. gift from God, right? Yes, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Um, what are some of the texts that have been sources of solace to you? So in your years of study, 
as you have wrestled with the text, where have you looked for sort of a repeated reminder of who God is, of what it is that he's called you to? I think some of the great repeated liturgical refrains of the Old Testament are places I go back to. I mean, when you're not sure about what to do with this or that text, going back to the things that the Old Testament people of God said most often about God, compassionate, slow to anger, those texts. I think that's a very sound basis for then thinking about other questions. Um, The Lament Psalms. Uh, the realization um, as a fairly mature adult that these texts were actually meant for us and they're not somehow a mistake. Uh, that, that lamenting is a faithful way of talking to God. I think many people who have come to that insight have found that to be a great relief, actually, that, um, that it's okay to talk frankly to God about stuff that's not great. Um, so those would be some of the examples, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, go-to texts that allow you to frame the questions about other texts in a better way. I know the Old Testament is your area, but are there any New Testament texts as well that you found really um, meaningful in a consistent way? It's harder for me to think about particular ones in the New Testament, interestingly. Um, and I don't know why that would be. <laughs> I mean, the whole New Testament is incredibly satisfying to read as a person who's spending a lot of time in the Old Testament because you constantly find where the conclusions of things are, as it were. So you see where things end up. Or you see how they're being lifted up and then extended further. Um, so it may well be as an Old Testament scholar that my my way of approaching the New Testament perhaps is not one that lends itself to the individual text approach. Um, but, I mean, like many people, Romans 8 is certainly a mighty fine text. <laughs> um, so this idea of God being for us, who can be against us, which I think is the entirely the Old Testament message, actually. But Paul does work it out very gloriously in Romans 8, and, and very rhetorically, I think. It's a wonderful passage. So that would be one. I can identify at least that one mm-hmm. as a, as a, in answer to that question. Mm-hmm. In thinking about these themes that, that you find sort of uh, wrapping up or being lifted up in the New Testament, what are one or two of those that, that are particularly meaningful to you? So approaching the Old Testament as a scholar, but then finding resolution in the New Testament as a Christian? I think some of the texts about, the rather mysterious texts about how suffering somehow is redemptive, which is a reality of Old Testament texts, but it's somewhat veiled, shall we say. Who is this suffering servant in Isaiah? It's, It's very unclear who it is, and even whether it is one person in some of the passages. Um, So, you know, to see the way in which that theme is worked out in the Gospels, for example, um, is a very, has been a very meaningful um, insight. So that would be one obvious example. Um, And then an example of where my reading of the New Testament has actually been perhaps improved by my reading of the Old would be 
on the whole eschatological end of time kind of text. That's a different kind of answer to your question where I think having a, a depth of understanding of the prophetic perspectives really helps one to to arrive at a better reading of the New Testament than sometimes people have arrived at without the benefit of the Old Testament. So. Mm-hmm. Um, if you've got a student coming to you, they say, I don't know whether I'm going to study Old Testament or New, St- New Testament. Do you always tell them Old Testament, or is there any situation in which you say, you know, go for the new? Well, strangely enough, just before coming for this interview, I ha- had such a conversation with a student, and uh, the answer is I don't try to influence them, really. In fact, I will typically say... I don't think it matters what you major on as long as you don't leave the other bit out um, because we all have to, in, in the educational environments in which we currently function anyway, we all have to major on something. By and large, we have to major on something. And I, I don't think it matters very much what you major on as long as you don't actually begin to read only bits of the Bible and not the rest of it. Um, I certainly think we continue to need excellent Orthodox Christian Evangelical Old Testament scholars probably more than we need New Testament ones. So if we're thinking about the that kind of student who's going on to further work, um, you know, if it's a... If I don't feel I'm leading the student unduly, as it were, I'll certainly encourage that. But I don't really want to take responsibility for somebody else's life. I think there's a difference between advising and directing. And I certainly don't want people coming back and saying, you said to me I ought to do this and look what a disaster has ensued. (laughs) So there are selfish uh, considerations here, Mm -hmm. I think. Advice I'm happy to give, direction not so much. Mm -hmm. Um, As you are looking forward you speak about the need for 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 more scholars in in your field what are your hopes for the academy specifically um in regard to old testament and biblical studies what is it you hope to see develop in the next 10 years well this is an interesting question first of all looking back because when i was a graduate student in the early 1980s i would have said the position in old testament studies was pretty bleak from the point of view of intelligent, committed Christian scholarship. Um, The last several decades have seen an absolute explosion of really helpful, good books, for example, tremendous number of younger people, uh, good younger people going into these areas. Um, here at Regent College ourselves we've sent many such students on from our biblical studies program so I continue to look for the the re-Christianization of the academy when it comes to biblical studies, people who are very serious about their scholarship but integrate that intentionally with everything else about their lives and are committed to teaching other people to do the same which inevitably involves a certain degree of sacrifice in the academic environment because it's not set up to allow that integration, frankly. Um, But that is the need of the hour, I think. Um, And I'm very encouraged that I can look back even in the period I've been involved in this and and, uh, uh, able to see a tremendous uh, improvement 
in 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 the circumstances. Uh, much easier for me now to send people off to read good books than it was for me to find such said books in 1982 or thereabouts. Um, so we're living in very encouraging times from that point of view. Um, so probably that's that's what I would say. Yeah. That's great. Thanks so much for your time today. Is there anything else you think our listeners need to know about the Old Testament or about your upcoming book launch? Well, um, the upcoming book launch on October the 31st, which of course is uh, the 500th anniversary to the very day of the beginning of the Reformation, uh, that that public lecture is on the perspicuity of Scripture. So if, re- if listeners are interested in that earlier conversation, then... I would encourage them to come. And obviously I would like it quite a lot if people would actually read the book. Um, <laughs> took quite a long time, in fact a whole lifetime to write the book. And it would be nice to think that people would actually read it with some benefit. So if I can outrageously plug the book Go for it. and the lecture, um, that would be a great way to, uh, to finish up. All right. Thanks so much, Ian. Really appreciate your time today. Thank you very much. It was great. Bye. Thanks for listening to Regent College Podcast. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. If you'd like to hear more content like this, you can find lectures, conferences, and entire courses at regentaudio.com. And to find out more information on Regent College's degrees and upcoming events, go to regent-college.edu.